Uh, we believe here that, um, that we're singing to the Almighty God, that he's present here with us, that he's a speaking God, and that we can hear what he has to say to us through the Bible. And we're going to just take time just to pray again, ask that he would speak to us now. So if he wanted to speak to you, why don't you join with me in prayer? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but in your great love and kindness, you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for your son. We thank you that as we look upon him and his life, we see a true reflection of all that you are. We thank you for your great love shown to us in your son and through your son, and we pray that you give us eyes to see it. Lord, we come as suffering and needy people, needing consolation and salvation. And so, Father, would you meet with each one of us at our point of need, in Christ's name, amen. Well, as a church, we asked the whole community, uh, if you had the opportunity to ask God one question, what would it be? And by far the most common question was this, what about all the suffering? Why is there so much suffering? We're going to be considering the four questions that people asked over the next Sundays, but today we're going to consider this question, why so much suffering? And really, it's how you respond to someone asking that question very much depends on where they're sitting. Are they sitting in an armchair or are they sitting in a wheelchair? You're going to go about answering that question quite differently, I think, depending on where the person is at. Is this a, a philosophical question, uh, an abstract question by someone observing the world and they're fine? Or is it actually a deeply and, uh, emotional and personal question of someone in the midst of deep suffering? There were two sisters who were grieving the loss of their brother. And uh, both independently come to Jesus and ask him the same question. He'd healed many people. And uh, they'd seen their, their brother Lazarus die, and they both independently come to Jesus, and they say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I find it fascinating to see how Jesus deals with these two women. To Martha, he does a little Bible study, and he reminds her that there will be a resurrection day, and that he is the resurrection and the life. And when Mary comes to him, and she says, look, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus sees her tears and goes to the tomb where Lazarus was buried four days earlier. And he is deeply moved, and he cries with her. Uh, to the one truth, to the other, tears. And we need that sensitivity, I guess, as we deal with this, with this issue. I, I'm sure there'll be people here today, and this is not an abstract question. But this is a very personal one. You've experienced real tragedies. Uh, you've watched those that you love going through great difficulties. And after this morning gathering, there will be people at the front here uh, who will be delighted just to uh, listen to you and pray with you. So please know that's available this morning. Uh, the problem of suffering is one that we all have to deal with. Whatever our worldview, whatever our philosophical outlook, we all have to deal with it. Whether it's the tragic loss of life as a bridge falls down in Italy, or the devastation of the civil war in Syria, or the ongoing stories about sexual abuse of women and children, 
or lives cut short through uh, cancer or diseases. Now, I want to, to this morning to kind of sketch out some of the, the responses of some of the dif- different world religions and philosophies out there, and then I want to sketch out something of what the Bible has to say. So when it comes to world, religi- world religions, as I understand it, in Hinduism, suffering is, is seen as payback or karma. Uh, Thus, the death of an infant to a devout Hindu home is seen as the reaping in the present of evil actions sown by a family member, uh, either uh, living or one in previous generations. And so into a Hindu worldview, why so much suffering? Well, the answer of Hinduism is ultimately because it's deserved and it's payback. In Buddhism, suffering is seen as an illusion. Uh, The question of suffering was kind of one of the key questions that Siddhartha Gautama, later known as the Buddha, the enlightened one, that he wrestled with. And under the bow tree, he received his enlightenment that basically all pain is an illusion. Our suffering relates to desire or the affection for things. And so the suffering of the loss of a wife is caused by your affection for your wife. And so what's needed in Buddhism is to remove our desire for things by adopting the path of Buddhism. In Islam, uh, suffering is determined. Uh, Islam means submission. And we need to submit to the will of Allah. Whatever circumstances he has decreed for us is not our place to question Allah, but merely to submit. In atheism, suffering is natural. Atheism is that belief that there is no God. Matter is all that there is, and whatever happens, whether good or bad, it it just is. Uh, Richard Dawkins, in this famous quote, put it this way, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe was precisely, has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And so a consistent atheist would know it's foolish to ask the question, why is there so much suffering? It is entirely natural and purposeless. And so getting rid of God does not get rid of the problem of suffering. I I would argue it only actually intensifies the problem as there's nowhere to go for comfort or any hope. Now I summarize these positions to basically uh, say that we're all wrestling with the problem of suffering, whatever our worldview, whatever our religious convictions I want to turn now to explore something of what the Bible has to say about this topic. And it's an impossible job. There's not one quick tweet answer. There's no simplistic answer. There is great mystery here as we look at this subject of of why there is so much suffering in the world. But one of the striking things about the Bible's treatment of suffering is the way that it endorses our right to question God. King David of Israel, who um, wrote, um, who lived about a thousand years before 
Jesus Christ. He wrote many songs that were included in the songbook of Israel, the, the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 22, we have these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. These are extraordinary words. To say these words as a Buddhist would indicate you've not been enlightened. Uh, as a Muslim, it would, it would border on blasphemy. If you are an atheist, of course, it's an utterly meaningless question. But here before Psalm 23, the, the most famous psalm perhaps, where uh, the Lord is my shepherd, that psalm. Here we have a psalm where we have permission from God to express our distress to God in our suffering. But why is there so much suffering? Well, I want us to just look at one bit of the Bible. I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one in front of you, just put your hand up and uh, the stewards will bring you one. Just leave your hand in the air and they'll bring it to you. But if you have a, a pew Bible, you can turn to page 1022. I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 16. Well, I'm going to read from verse 12, I think. Of Mark chapter 15. You see, at the heart of Christianity, there is this moment the death and the resurrection of Jesus. At the heart of the Christian faith is this moment of great suffering, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And I want to sketch out some of what the Bible has to say just from asking the question here, why is there so much suffering here? Why is Jesus suffering? The Jewish leaders had decided that Jesus should be executed they didn't have the right to do that without the permission of the Roman uh, authorities at a time where, the, where Rome was the empire and, and um, there in, in, in Israel. And so they had to take Jesus before Pilate, who was in charge of the Roman soldiers. So let me just read, uh, let's read from verse 6. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. 
And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down there he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Why so much Suffering. Uh, Robert Burns, uh, Scotland's famous poet of the 18th century, uh, wrote this. Many and sharp the numerous ills inwoven with our frame. More pointed still we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man whose heaven-erected face the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. Burns, I think, captures something of the complex human psychology inside all of us. We are capable of great acts of love, kindness, and sacrifice, and yet there is still something terribly twisted and distorted within each one of us that is capable of terrible acts of cruelty, hatred, and inflicting suffering on others. How is it that we can take delight in cruelty and suffering and death? But we can. In each of us, there's a strong desire that we should um, 
be the center of the universe, to, to have our own desires, to have our own will fulfilled. When it boils down to it, uh, we want our own way. We don't want anybody to tell us how to live our lives. We, we want to get what we want, and if someone gets in the way, we're prepared to do terrible things to get at it. Now here we have this eyewitness account of how people treated Jesus. It was clear to Pontius Pilate that uh, Jesus was innocent and had done nothing deserving of the death sentence. The religious leaders in Israel had rejected the claim of Jesus to be their rightful king. He challenged and criticized the way that they were leading the people. And it was too inconvenient to take him seriously, and that's why they brought him to Pilate. And although Pilate could see no basis for putting Jesus to death, he obviously cared more about his own position uh, than caring about justice. And so he gives into the blood lust of the crowd. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released a man who he knew was innocent to be flogged. He uh, released Barabbas and um, caused Jesus to be flogged and, and handed him over to be crucified. And it was not enough to flog Jesus. The soldiers then enjoyed the sadistic torture and mockery of this condemned man. A crown of thorns placed on his head. Uh, his head beaten with sticks. The spitting, the mockery. And then nailing his body to a wooden cross and to leave him hanging naked in the air in this most public and painful death. And consider the response of the crowd to this bleeding, dying man. How did they respond? Verse 29, they hurled their insults at him. They called out, save yourself. And the religious leaders enjoyed mocking him as well. Look at this scene at the cross of Christ. What do you see? At one level, clearly we see here man's inhumanity to man. There's something deeply twisted in each one of us. That given the right circumstances, the seeds of such horrors are in our hearts. Do you think that we've evolved to some higher stage of humanity where these things no longer happen? Well, just read the history of the 20th century. Just read the newspapers. I could read things that are so grotesque. Well, I couldn't read them. They're too grotesque. They've happened in the last... 12 months. The Bible describes and explains how we as human beings are both the glory of the universe and the garbage of the universe. We're capable of wonderful things and we're capable of terrible things. We can build amazing bridges and yet it looks like there may well have been corruption and mismanagement and so it wasn't the right concrete and so the thing collapses and kills. Why is there so much suffering? Well, part of the Bible's answer is this, because of us. It comes from us. The Bible says that when God created mankind, he created us in his image, male and female, and he pronounced what he'd made as very good. We are capable of glorious things. We are created as moral beings, rational beings, who make choices of how to behave and respond. But spurred by the devil, the Bible says, we chose to reject the rule of God. We chose to live pretending as if we were in charge, that we had the right to be God. And in our rebellion against God, we turned from a good God and we chose evil. 
We turned from the light to head into darkness. God gave us the potential of these free choices of our wills and we turned away. And our disordered hearts are the reason for a disordered world. Two world wars, countless conflicts, much of the problems of starvation and famine linked to civil war, uh, the, the corruption of despotic regimes, rape, sexual abuse, anger, violence. Much of this suffering is directly linked with the exercise of free will, of, of people choosing to do evil. Isn't that the case? And even indirectly, what we sometimes call as natural evils, um, the Bible says that because man was created as the pinnacle of his creation, when man rebelled against God, it meant that all of creation gets dislocated. That these natural disasters and diseases flow out of our willful rebellion against God. This is a sin-cursed world that is now corrupted and dying because we have rebelled against our Creator. We've unplugged from the life source of what is good and what gives life. But you see, there's something even deeper and more disturbing going on in this event around the cross. As we look at the, at the cross of Christ, we don't just merely see man's inhumanity to man, but man's rejection of God. If later today you took the time to read Mark's account, this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, uh, you will see this very clearly, that this is not just cruelty against a mere man, but here is rejection of a particular man as God's appointed king, the Messiah. Mark has laid out the, the evidence earlier in the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah King, the Son of God, who, has, who speaks and acts with all the authority of God himself. He, he teaches with authority. He speaks and demonstrates his authority over disaster and demons and disease and death. And yet his kingship is rejected. We see it in the account here. The, the soldiers mock, hail King of the Jews. What a joke. This pitiful man, the king of the Jews. Pilate, uh, more than likely, his sign above the cross was one of mockery as he put above the cross, the king of the Jews. The leaders mock, verse 32, let this Messiah, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may uh, see and believe. There is no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God come in human flesh. That he understood that everything he said and did had ultimate significance. See, when he claimed to forgive sins, the religious leaders of the day knew exactly what he was saying. This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And so here in this rejection of, a, of, 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 of this man, we have something much more profound. We have the rejection of the Son of God. God comes in human flesh to this world and we crucify him. We will not let him be God over our lives. Jesus tells a, a, a parable, a story about a king who uh, creates a vineyard and everything is there for a secure, uh, wonderful vineyard, making great wine. And then the vineyard is rented out to tenant farmers. And uh, at the harvest, he sends a servant to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard. But instead of recognizing the owner's right to some of the harvest, they grab hold of the servant, they beat him up, and they send him away empty-handed. And so the king sends another servant, and this time they do the same. They beat him up, and they treat him even more shamefully and send him on his way. The king sends another servant. This servant they kill. And then there's only one person left to send, 
it says, uh, Jesus says in the story, a son whom he loves. The king sends his only son. And he sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But instead the tenants say, this is the heir, come. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now the vineyard imagery would have been clear to the uh, the people who knew their Hebrew Bible in those days, it was often used as a description of Israel as a vineyard, as God's vineyard. And Jesus couldn't have been clearer. He is the Son of God, the rightful heir, not only of Israel, but the whole world. And in putting him to death, here enacted in history is the reality that we reject the kingship of God over our lives. And listen to what Jesus says at the end of the parable. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God does demand justice for the wickedness and evil in this world. And would we not demand the same justice if we'd rented out our house for a year while we went overseas somewhere and uh, while we were overseas received a postcard from the tenant saying, by the way, we've taken over your house. And so you send your only son to go and negotiate with them and they send him back in a body bag. Would we not demand justice? This is God's world. We are his creatures. We've been made tenants of his world. We enjoy all the blessings of it and yet we reject the rule of God and ignore him and live life without him. And we crucify his son. Now I'd imagine there'd be lots of questions, lots of follow-up questions. And if you're new to these things, there's some pretty big thoughts there. And if you'd like to um, discuss that with anyone, we, we'll run a number of different groups in the coming months where you can get to ask those questions. Just, I think there might be a Glad You Asked course. There might be a Life Explored course. And you just fill out your uh, details. We'd love to talk about these things and hear your questions and try and address them in a, in a sort of relaxed format away from a big room like this. But as we ask the question, why so much suffering in this account of the life of Jesus? At one level, we, we, we see this, this is a picture of, of how we as human beings are capable of great wickedness and evil towards each other. But at a deeper spiritual level, this, this tells us that we are creatures in rebellion against the good God who created us. We want to be in charge. We want to rule our own lives. We want to exercise our own wills and rebel against him. But I want you to consider this point as we look at this amazing moment in history. God did not prevent us from turning away from him, but instead he pursues us into the darkness in order to rescue and save us. We have a God who did not save himself, but sacrificed himself in order to rescue and save us from our darkness. Now there's still great mystery about the problem of suffering in this world. We know that God is all-powerful. We know that God is all-good and can never be the direct cause of evil. And yet in his loving and ultimately good purpose, he has allowed evil and suffering to enter into this world for a limited time. 
And when Christians look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we know that God is not a sadistic scientist sort of doing experiments on some mice. He is a God of love and compassion who has entered into this world, into this suffering world, and has experienced it firsthand through his son, suffering. We have a God with wounds. And yet his suffering was both purposeful and saving. As I finish, just look at these two last cries of Jesus from the cross that make this very point. Verse 33, in the middle of the day at noon, a great darkness comes over the land. This is a supernatural darkness. In the Hebrew scriptures, uh, darkness was often what accompanied the times of God's judgment against sin. And in those hours of darkness, Jesus quotes those very words from Psalm 22 that we considered earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He identifies himself with the suffering poet of Psalm 22. He shows that he's identifying with us in our suffering. And then we have this incredible cry in verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last see our rebellion deserves God's judgment and punishment but here in Jesus here here at the cross Jesus um, is swapping places with us on the cross the judgment and wrath of God that we deserve it it comes upon him That first cry is a a cry of being forsaken and shut out from the presence of God as he experiences our punishment. And then there is this last cry, this loud cry. And look what happens after that, verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple in Jerusalem had an inner room that symbolized the very presence of God, and yet it was a restricted area. There was this huge, heavy curtain that blocked access. It reminds sinful people that we are separated from a holy God. It's not safe to go into God's presence. And the cry of Psalm 22 is a cry of of being shut out from the presence of God as he bears our sin. And yet after the final cry, when the suffering is over, the curtain is torn in two, and, and, and it is saying the way is now open for sinners to be forgiven and enter into the presence of a holy God. There is a way of salvation. There is a way of rescue. The suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most profoundest comfort and hope for us in a suffering world. Have you read a really good book, Understanding the Theology of the Cross? Get John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, to linger on this. The cross reveals the glory of God in his righteous justice. God hates evil. Evil must be punished. And the cross reveals his glory as a righteous, just judge. Jesus is punished for the wickedness of sinners. And the cross also reveals the glory of God 
in his amazing mercy and grace, he substitutes his own son in the place of sinners. And who in this account is the first to see the true identity of Jesus? Well, incredibly, verse 39, it is the centurion, this Gentile Roman centurion, who saw how he died, verse 39, and said, surely this man was the Son of God. Here was the very one who was in charge of the flogging, the mockery, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. And he sees his death and he says, surely this man was the Son of God. We are the cause of the suffering in this world. We do terrible things to each other because we've rejected and rebelled against God. But although we are the ones who've turned away from God, he is the one who's come after us. And at great cost to himself, he enters into our suffering on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we can be rescued, so that we can be restored into a right relationship with him. And that all who trust him will one day know a day when there is no more suffering, when his kingdom comes in its fullness. For those who trust him, this is the glorious future that is ahead. The promise of God's presence and and nearness to us as we suffer now, knowing that it is limited because Christ has suffered in my place, that there's no final day of wrath and judgment, but only the bliss of the new heavens and the new earth. But my friends, if you continue in your rebellion and rejection of the only Savior, then what awaits you is eternal separation and suffering. And that these days will be the best days you'll ever know in your life. The suffering that we experience in this life is something C.S. Lewis calls as a megaphone to wake us up as sinners that all is not well in this world. We're separated from this God of love and grace and we're facing his judgment because of our sin and now is the time to turn to Jesus for salvation. And let me simply ask you this, have you done that? Have you done that? You could turn to him today, you know. You could pray a very simple prayer that says, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry that I've rebelled against you and done wrong. Thank you that Jesus, uh, you sent Jesus to die in my place. Please forgive me and change me to live for you. Maybe there's somebody who wants to pray that right now today. I'm going to bow bow your heads. I'm going to pray that prayer. And if you want to make it your prayer, why don't you do so in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Dear God, Sorry that I've rebelled against you and done wrong. Thank you that you sent your son to die in my place on the cross. Please forgive me and change me to live for you. Amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, why don't you come and tell somebody? We'd love to help you as you start the Christian life. And if you're coming today and really you've been struggling to listen to anything I say because you're in such pain at the suffering you're going through, remember there's a team of people at the front here. They'd be delighted to, to talk with you, to listen with you, and to pray for you. Let's stand and sing uh, a song of great assurance that we can have as those who've trusted Christ.
that whatever we go through, we know that the greatest problem is solved. It is well with my soul. Let's stand and sing.